Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to Hudson Institute and to this conference today on the Center for American Sea Power's recently published monograph, Maritime Strategy in the New Era of Global Competition. I'm Seth Cropsey. I'm director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. This afternoon, we are delighted and honored to have with us Hudson's distinguished fellow, Walter Russell Mead, and Hudson's distinguished uh, deputy director for the American Center, the Center for American Sea Power, uh, Brian McGrath. Um, I'm going to say a couple of introductory remarks very, very briefly, and then we'll get to the substance here. Walter Russell Mead is James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College. He's been a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he also held a position as Henry Kissinger Senior Fellow for US Foreign Policy. Mr. Mead writes prolifically for everything from the Wall Street Journal to the American Interests to uh, Mother Jones and uh, Gentleman's Quarterly. His next book, The Ark of a Covenant, uh, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People will be published by Knopf Doubleday in March. Brian McGrath, besides being director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power, is a retired naval officer. Uh, Mr. McGrath commanded a guided missile destroyer and was the guiding hand between, uh, behind the Navy's 2007 maritime strategic document. More recently, uh, he founded and directs the Ferrybridge Group, which calls on his extensive background in strategy, naval affairs, and national security. He's also a prolific writer and occasionally humorous blogger. I would, uh, I'd like to turn the floor over first to Mr. Mead, who will offer some thoughts about the broad issues of the monograph that is the subject of our discussion this afternoon. I will follow him and provide some historic context, as well as thoughts about our current maritime situation. And then Brian will conclude with some of the monograph's recommendations, uh, placing them in the context of the study. Then there will be a question period uh, when called upon, um, there will be uh, one of our excellent Hudson interns here with a microphone who will give you the mic. Um, would you please tell us your name and your organizational affiliation, if you have one, um, and also to whom your question is addressed? So thank you again for joining us this afternoon, and Walter. Floor is yours. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, um, I thought where I might uh, be most useful here was to talk about um, how important maritime power, sea power, is to the structure of American power and therefore to world order and world history. It's not, when we think about sea power, we shouldn't think of it as this extra optional dimension of power, which sometimes one adds onto the mix. But actually, in, in American, the American case, it's something that's, that's fundamental. Uh, 
best way to understand this, I think, is to look at, at the development of essentially Anglo-American grand strategy, that, that to a very large degree, American grand strategy restates themes that were apparent uh, in Britain. They've uh, tried to sue us, as I understand it, for intellectual copyright, but it hasn't, uh, hasn't worked, at least not yet. For one thing, they stole it from the Dutch. So it, but it's a very old strategy. And interestingly, the three countries, the Dutch, the British, and the English, who have followed this approach, have largely dominated historical power uh, balances in Europe and then later in the wider world. So it's very effective. Um, the first element of the strategy of the, the secret Anglo-American plan for global domination, if you want to think about that, is, uh, is simple and doesn't seem strategic at all. It's have an open society at home. Allow the free flow of information. Allow people to try new ways of doing business, new ways of organizing themselves. The Dutch began this in the 17th century. They developed the joint stock company. They developed a whole host of new techniques. The British in the late 8th, 17th, and 18th centuries, the Americans throughout our history, a foundation of power is this open society. But the second step, you immediately begin to engage with the sea. You take the show on the road. You have a dynamic economy based on free flow of information, free exchange, um, uh, free liberal political institutions. This gives your economy lots of goods to sell, lots of ideas, lots of techniques. You take it on the road. The Dutch in the, in the 17th century, the Dutch had 10,000 ocean-going commercial ships. They weren't all big ships. But that's a lot of ships for a small country. And the point is that this engagement with the world is the foundation of continued and growing prosperity. That uh, you are able, because you are trading in markets all over the world, learning all over the world, applying that learning to your own ideas about production, organization, distribution, you're becoming more competitive more productive, and growing enormously rich from trade. Step three is you your geopolitical strategy is wrapped around the basis of your prosperity. That is, you are not trying to conquer Europe. You are trying to engage freely globally. So you are more interested in, say, the sea lanes between Europe and North America than you are in trying to conquer some fortress in Alsace or that sort of thing. Your, your vision of where, how power works is linked to what are the sources of your power. And they are your open society at home, so homeland defense. And they are the worldwide connections that you're able to establish through your trade uh, and through your integration and investments in other economies. And so naval power from the time of the Dutch in the 17th century through the British and the American eras is the foundation of global strategy, global strategic thinking, 
and of Anglo-American world power. And if you think about it, since we can say about it, well, American power is a flash in the pan since World War II, but the power that the United States succeeded as the global power was also a liberal, commercial, English-speaking hegemon, Great Britain. So we're really talking about a strategy that's been shaping world history for 300 years and not simply for 60 or 70. Therefore, perhaps it's likely to be a bit more durable than sometimes people, people expect. Well, having developed this worldwide system, you then do something rather odd. You invite other countries to participate in the system. So you say to Germany, as Britain did in the 19th century, you can trade in this British world system. You can use the oceans that we patrol. The British Navy, in a sense, will suppress piracy for everyone, not simply for the British. Um, and so other countries participate and grow rich also from participating in, in that trade. Now, sometimes those other countries want to use that wealth as a way of, um, uh, you know, to build the economic and political and technological foundations to challenge that maritime order. Um, when that happens, they make an unpleasant discovery, sort of step 4B of this strategy, which is that they are dependent now on economic exchange. It's what I've called sticky power, that the Kaiser's Germany had risen to be in many ways a greater economic power than Great Britain, but to do so, it had become addicted to trade, to raw materials, to sources of food that could be interdicted in case of war, and in fact were. So that during World War I, and for that matter, World War II, Germany and Japan, um, strategy, military strategy was dominated by the need to somehow regain access to raw materials and other things that had been cut off. So your, your maritime strategy becomes a tool, your sea power becomes a tool. In peace, it promotes economic integration and increases the chance that other countries, as indeed Germany and Japan have done since World War II, rather than seeing your international system as some kind of threat to be overturned, will see it as an opportunity, as a, as a tree under whose shade they can prosper and grow, and will in fact, and in the German and Japanese case, will become leading pillars, will, will actually be helping you support your power. That's the ideal case. But then on the other hand, there's always the chance that they will, that other powers will, and some speculate whether you know, in China, people are thinking of doing this now, but it turns out to be rather difficult. Again, if China were to decide to break with the U.S.-led maritime system and try a military challenge, it's not really enough to be able to deny the U.S. access to waters near China. That doesn't get China's African mineral investments. It doesn't get those minerals back to the factories. It doesn't get the oil and other things in. It doesn't open global access to ch the Chinese products that have become the foundation of the Chinese economy. 
So this system, once established, is very difficult to overturn. Now, I could go on a great deal more about this, but I think what I've said is enough to give you some sense of the importance of maritime power, sea power, sea power thinking in American grand strategy. It is the foundation of world order. It has been for 300 years, ever since the Americans were an element in the British world system. It, we do not know what the future will hold, but a, a, a system and a strategy that have worked this well for, for this long should not be casually dismissed. I'll close with one observation that communications have historically been seen as very much a part of this maritime strategy. So that in the 19th century, the British were very concerned both to have undersea cables, which were the equivalent of satellites in those days as means of providing near instantaneous transmission of information, the British to be able to make sure that their communications were, were, were secure, but that they also had ample opportunities to listen to the communication of adversaries in time of war. And so to see if, if we think today that information warfare, that cybersecurity are actually an extension of this fundamental global strategy resting on sea power, and that the intersection between them is not something that just has sprung up today, but has been played a significant role in strategic thinking for 150 years. I think we can begin to see the strategic picture today, the challenges to American power, the sorts of responses that are needed to meet those challenges. And I think this perspective can really assist us in thinking through the world situation today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Walter. And uh, <clears throat> just point out in passing here that this beautifully articulated description of strategy and its roots and its importance to the United States used to be something that uh, was sort of understood at least if not at the level of articulation at the level at uh, at a meaningful political level in the United States for example when the United States was founded and uh, one of the reasons we're here today is that that understanding is has largely disappeared um, and I'll address some of that here. In the, in the popular imagination, certain phrases define moments in history. Uh, most were meant to be heard either by political contemporaries or the general population. Uh, it'd be hard to think of the American Revolution, for example, without Patrick Henry's uh, statement Give me liberty or give me death. Uh, the Second World War, absent Churchill's finest hour, or the fall of communism without uh, Reagan's remark, tear down this wall. However, simple phrases 
um, meant only uh, for um, one person can also be uh, meaningful and, uh, and memorable. Um, uh, one that comes to mind for me is uh, Admiral George Dewey's, uh, you, are f you may fire when you're ready, Gridley, uh, uttered 120 years ago and addressed only to Chap Captain Charles Gridley, uh, commander of Dewey's flagship, the USS Olympia at Manila Bay. That short sentence uh, is a kind of milestone that uh, inaugurated a new era in Americans' place in the world. During the American Republic's first century, land power largely defined uh, US foreign policy. The old blood European states, France and Britain, paid little attention to the upstart nation across the Atlantic. They were preoccupied with their own continental and colonial maneuverings. Uh, except for action against the Barbary pirates and, uh, of course, the Civil War, land power sufficed to ensure American security and prosperity. While ground troops fought consistent low-intensity conflicts on the western frontier and decisively dispatched uh, potential regional rivals, the U.S. Navy was used to ward off external intervention during periods of internal weakness or foreign campaigns and maintain a nominal, albeit uh, expanding, uh, presence abroad to protect American shipping. Americans, America's victory over Spain in 1898 represented a break with this land-centric tradition. Naval power had facilitated two decisive victories separated by nearly 10,000 miles of open water, and given the US total control over the Western Atlantic and provided it with a solid foothold in the Western Pacific. This new geographic position propelled the United States into its position as a great power with the competition that accompanied such a position. A great power competition requires statecraft. Absent a major regional rival, states can rely on their structural economic strength to facilitate expansion. But the overlapping global interests of great powers uh, necessitates statesmanship uh, from any individual power. And when you take into effect, into effect the, the Earth's predominantly oceanic geography and the maritime nature of the international economic system, naval forces are the most effective tool, as Walter was saying, to project power abroad, uh, to protect vital economic and advanced security interests. Um, effective naval power requires a maritime strategy, an understanding of the role that naval forces play in promoting the national interest, uh, the structure of those forces, and the way in which they should be employed. The United States' historical experience demonstrates the practical results 
of an effective maritime strategy. By contrast, the current relative lack of a maritime strategy, despite the reemergence of great power competition, places at risk our international position. America's great power period began in 1898, and it continues. Throughout the US, throughout that time, the US benefited from a coherent maritime strategy articulated by military officers and policymakers who understood the purpose of a strong Navy in advancing American interests and defending American prosperity internationally. Foremost among early advocates for American sea power was uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan, whose thinking shaped the perspective of European, um, of Japanese, uh, and American naval leaders throughout the early 20th century. His famous book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, provided a clear articulation of the role that maritime strength played in the decline of the Dutch Republic uh, and the simultaneous rise of the British Empire. Mahan advocated a large battle fleet composed of capital ships able to crush its enemies in a decisive engagement, along with smaller surface combatants to show the flag in foreign ports and protect international shipping. Again here, to place this in the historical context, um, Theodore Roosevelt, first as Assistant Secretary of the Navy and later as President, embraced Mahan's approach to maritime strategy and greatly expanded the U.S. Navy. Roosevelt used this naval power to preclude intervention in the Western Hemisphere as demonstrated in the 1903 Venezuela crisis. The later Roosevelt corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which reserved the United States' right to intervene in Latin America on behalf of European powers, that is, rather than allowing European states to intervene directly, had no teeth without a coherent maritime strategy and sufficient naval strength to support it. A coherent, effective maritime strategy also enabled American success in the First World War. If the Allied powers lacked sensible strategy in the northern European slaughter, the US possessed one that suited its eventual engagement. President Wilson's anti-interventionism, uh, German hegemony on the European continent, would have posed a direct threat to, uh, I mean, despite Wilson's inter intervention, anti-interventionism. -intervention, German hegemony on the European continent would have posed a direct threat to US economic interests um, and potentially a later military threat to the United States. US planners had created a force of large surface combatants and smaller destroyers well suited for the task the US military faced after it entered the war in April of 1917. Most important, the US Navy had to ensure the safe passage of supplies and soldiers to Britain and France, enabling the preservation of the Western Front and concentration of forces for a later offensive, despite German U-boats. 
American destroyers executed this task, commanded by future Second World War admirals, Second World War admirals, most notably the men who would become five-star officers, Chester Nimitz, William Halsey, and Ernest King. Moreover, the, US, the U.S.'s capital ships reinforced the British Grand Fleet in December of 1917. A coherent maritime strategy also enabled American victory during the Second World War. Despite military stagnation throughout the 1920s and 30s, the American officer corps preserved its focus on a war with Japan, developing aircraft carrier tactics and operational methods that were consistent with the larger Pacific campaign. The Army-Navy War Plans Office developed a series of strategies for different contingencies. These gave the Roosevelt administration sound strategic options on which they made successful policy. Most important, Representative Carl Vinson's, again, the previous generations, Two Ocean Navy Act, jump-started U.S. Navy shipbuilding and ensured that America's fleet was sufficient to counter uh, Japanese offensive during the early days of the war in the Pacific. Vincent's actions specifically demonstrate the critical role of a maritime strategy in a broader strategic culture. Vincent understood the implication of France's defeat. Just as Imperial Germany would have threatened the US by commanding the European continent's resources, Hitler's regime would do the same, either by directly targeting America or denying the US access to European ports, absent acquiescence to Nazi hegemony. So the Navy's role in this conflict was like its role in World War I with the critical added task of a large-scale <coughs> traditional naval campaign in the Pacific against, against Japan. In both world wars, American policymakers and military leaders had a clear idea of the US's goal, opposition to hegemony on the European continent. Just as clear was their vision of the Navy's role in achieving that goal, facilitating the transport of men and material to Europe while fighting a fleet action as necessary. This is evidence of a clear, of a deliberate maritime strategy that defined US foreign policy for over half a century. America's Cold War situation required a different maritime strategy, one that would address a different threat. Rather than fighting a fleet action against a structurally similar force, the U.S. Navy was tasked with countering Soviet submarines, striking Eastern Bloc coastal targets, and facilitating amphibious flanking movements against Warsaw Pact forces in Europe. The elimination of the Soviet Union as a competitor, however, left the Navy with a weak hand on the strategic rudder. Attempting to articulate its purpose, the Navy eschewed a maritime strategy assumed absolute sea control, and identified the littorals as its primary operational environment. However, great power competition returned. And with it, the need for a genuine maritime strategy not conceptualized during the Cold War. 
America faces not only Russian subsurface threats and Iranian fast attack boats and swarming missiles, but also a potential peer competitor in the state of China. The People's Liberation Army Navy will be able to field multiple aircraft carrier strike groups, probably, within the next decade, giving them a capability that the US has monopolized since the destruction of the Japanese fleet at Lady Gulf in 1944. America faces adversaries that seek both to deny it access to critical global choke points and project power far beyond their coastlines. Responding to this threat requires adequate funding for naval expansion. However, any shipbuilding program must take into account the decline in the defense industrial base that has occurred over the past seven decades. Specialized industrial capacity is particularly important for naval power. Civilian facilities can be adapted to wartime equipment production, and ground forces can benefit from commercial off-the-shelf equipment purchased in bulk. But without enough ports, specifically designed to handle large-scale maritime construction projects, naval expansion has a cloud hanging over it. Moreover, in wartime, US naval forces would face daunting challenges to recoup their losses, build new ships to replace those that could no longer function or had been sunk. These realities directly link US naval power and maritime strategy to its maritime infrastructure. Sustained merchant shipping construction is the best guarantor of a healthy maritime industrial base. American maritime industrial power reached its height at the, second, at the end of the Second World War with eight public and 64 private shipyards, creating a sustained fleet and sustaining a fleet that peaked at 6,700 vessels. Such construction capacity was a result of specific government policy. The Maritime Commission created in 1936 facilitated this establishment of two-thirds of the private yards. Here are the results of American maritime strategy at work. A strong maritime industrial base, enabled and incentivized by targeted government support, enabled US naval dominance. Despite the shipbuilding contraction of the 1950s, efforts like the Mariner Program sustained enough merchant construction to preserve a healthy core in the industry. But the rise of international shipbuilding competitors, enabled by labor-intensive construction techniques for simply designed tankers, threatened US shipbuilding. The US government made the rational choice to privatize major yards, but continuing fluctuations in international economic conditions meant that the shipbuilding industry remained unstable. Policy choices in the 1980s demonstrate connection between maritime industrial capacity and naval construction. President Reagan's 600-ship Navy was a boon for the industry. But by currently defunding the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, US policy effectively forced the closure of three out of the nine major remaining shipyards. 
The remaining six yards took exclusively naval contracts, meaning the shipbuilding industry lacked long-term sustained support absent continual naval expansion. So today's maritime industrial base is made up of a core group of highly specialized yards. Huntington Ingalls industry and general dynamics construct some of the most advanced military technologies in the world. But a large question again hangs over our naval defense industrial base. If, um, is there sufficient construction capacity in time of crisis? Uh, this general agreement that there's enough capacity uh, to meet an increased 30-year naval shipbuilding plan. But could we do this in, say, half the time? Um, does a relatively small number of yards make current U.S. maritime infrastructure a target for America's rivals under the worst circumstances? Addressing the issues of U.S. sea power requires a sustained focus on rebuilding the maritime industrial base. Targeted government support is needed to ensure that U.S. yards employ cutting-edge construction techniques, help ensure, thereby reclaiming a share of the merchant construction market and enabling long-term maritime industrial health. A good maritime strategy must take this into account. In conclusion, the U.S. can rebuild its sea power and meet the threats it faces, provided American legislators allocate adequate funding to such projects. But such funding will only exist if U.S. policymakers and the American people understand the role of the Navy in ensuring U.S. prosperity and deterring America's enemies and the stakes in the coming confrontation between the U.S. and its Sino-Russian-Iranian adversaries. A clear maritime strategy will help ensure success in this new age of power, great power competition, while an unclear one leads to failure. At risk is not an abstract conception of international order, but a concrete decline in the prosperity Americans enjoy and the freedom that they expect to receive at home and abroad, as well as the so-called liberal international order. Thank you for your patience, and let me turn the floor over to Brian. Thank you, Seth. Thanks to all of you. It's a packed house here today. It's nice to see. And we have uh, folks from all over the world and our ships at sea watching and listening on the internet, which I also think is great, because this is an important topic. And my job today in hitting cleanup is to talk about some of the recommendations we had in our monograph. First, though, <clears throat> I'd like to make a comment or two on the direction of US strategy uh, most recently explicated in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy. I'm generally pleased with these documents and the overall tone that they are setting. There are two central ideas that leap out of those documents, though, that I think are uh, most worthy of note. First, there is an unapologetic emphasis on great power competition. This competition has been underway for over a dozen years, and it was high time that we acknowledge it. Second, there's a recognition that this 
that the military competition, uh, excuse me, component of this competition must re-emphasize conventional deterrence. I realize that it's odd for me to be sitting here in a think tank founded by one of the giants of strategic deterrence theory to be saying that, um, but we saw it in both, we saw this, uh, this renaissance of conventional deterrence in both documents, especially the national security strategy where there was a clear intellectual pivot from a strategy of conventional deterrence that relies on punishment to a strategy of conventional deterrence that relies on denial and delay of the objectives of the opponent. Punishment was appropriate for middling powers in regional uh, crises who might be cowed by the threat of the pain that was over the horizon. But great powers will not be so easily deterred especially from the pursuit of limited objectives close to their own shores. We must deter them with forces postured there continuously as the threat of a major war undertaken to reverse limited aggression is likely to prove unpalatable both at home and abroad. So I will urge two cheers for those two documents uh, and I will whinge that they do not go far enough especially the national defense strategy, in explicitly emphasizing a maritime approach. The CSBA, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments Fleet Architecture, which we in our study lavishly praised for its wisdom, uh, embraces this theory of deterrence by denial and delay and lays out a comprehensive approach to how a fleet would be comprised that would be useful within this larger maritime construct. Such a fleet architecture will, however, never come into being unless one of two things or a combination thereof occurs. First is a massive increase across the board in defense spending. And the second would be a reallocation of resources within the Defense Department itself. Unless our friends and allies are willing to host large formations of land power or grant frequent and unimpeded overflight rights during peacetime, neither land power nor land-based air power can provide the capability, capacity, power, flexibility, and persistence that sea power brings to the challenges of modern conventional deterrence. So I have a few recommendations that summarize what we uh, put into our, into our study. For, the first is that all of you go run right home and read the study. You can, it's available online. There's a PDF uh, at the uh, Hudson Center for American Sea Power uh, website. But then also go over to CSBA site and read their fleet architecture study, because I think it's best to think of them almost as companions with our, uh, our uh, paper setting a strategic context that a fleet architecture that CSBA laid out in their study fits nicely into. As I said, our recommendations aim at the level of grand strategy. And to that end, we recommend the creation of a bipartisan commissioned on grand strategy with appointees selected by the president and the leadership of both parties. This commission should be staffed and funded for approximately two years of work. This isn't going to happen overnight. 
It should hold hearings and work in both classified and unclassified forums. It should be tasked to create a public document and a classified annex outlining a strategy for a new era of great power competition, and we believe that it will necessarily favor a maritime approach. Um, we have not, until this administration, been method met uh, methodically preparing for great power competition, let alone even competing. That said, even with the steps made so far in this administration, a new consensus must be forged to guide a national effort forward. As I said, we believe such an effort would naturally gravitate towards a maritime strategy, as the historical uh, experts sitting next to me have already discussed why that fits naturally into our, um, our, our national character and our geographic advantages. The President and the Congress should work together to increase the size and capability of American naval power, and by that I mean, I mean the Navy and Marine Corps. Because of the time and capital intensive nature of Navy buildups, this, this action cannot be deferred any longer. Findings of the Commission just recommended could be woven into the long-term building plan, but ample evidence shows that American sea power is insufficiently constituted to do the things that we ask of it today. And the things that we ask of it today are insufficient to what the role we see uh, ourselves taking on in the world. This larger Navy should more closely balance the priority of sea control and power projection, and it must return in force to the European theater of operations. Next, I think the Secretary of the Navy needs to make the industrial base a center of his efforts um, and make recommendations to include capital improvements, workforce and vocational and technical programs, and sustainment and repair enhancements. The Naval Industrial Base must be considered a strategic asset, as Seth reinforced earlier. And this asset can't be allowed to decline any further and must, in fact, uh, be uh, looked after. I, like most of the people here at Hudson, am a free trader. I'm a free market guy. Um, but when it comes to national defense, the virtues of Schumpeter's uh, creative destruction must be balanced against the risks of defense preparedness. We talk a lot in our, uh, in our study about geostrategy and the return of geostrategy and why some allies and potential allies may matter more than others based on where they are in the world. Uh, we believe the Secretary's Defense and State should work to identify the nations that are ge geostrategically critical and shape our diplomatic efforts accordingly. Basing rights, site preparation, bilateral exercises, and programs to increase military preparedness uh, to include foreign military sales should be considered. Not all of these nations will always share all of our values. And we may have to be prepared for somewhat more transactional relationships in order to protect access to favorable geography. Finally, and obviously, the Navy must grow larger, faster. Today's level of spending on American sea power, as I said earlier, is insufficient to grow the fleet from its current level of 277 or so ships 
to even the previous administration's goal of 308 ships, much less the current administration's goal of 350 or 355 ships, depending on which number uh, you wish to aim at. Without dominant, Amer without dominant sea power, the U.S. would have achieved neither its current wealth nor helped establish and preserve the international order upon which greater future prosperity depends. And I wrote it down earlier. Walter Russell Mead said, sea power is the foundation of the world order. I like that. I'm going to have to use that one again. Um, it would end the strategic advantage. Uh, the loss of dominant power would end the strategic strategic advantage of being able to invade any other coastal state in the world uh, while being entirely secure from invasion ourselves. The U.S. has enjoyed this advantage for well over a century. Measured against foreseeable increases in non-discretionary spending, the cost of modernizing American sea power and preserving global superiority is slight. The alternative to making the small sacrifice needed for maintaining our competitive advantage at sea is to follow other great superpowers, sea powers, that have forgotten the source of their greatness and have lost the foundation of their economic prosperity along with their security. I think that about wraps it up for me, and I'll turn it back over to our fearless leader, Seth, and your intelligent questions. Thank you. Well, that's a nice way of putting it, Brian. Thank you. Um, uh, any questions? So, Remember, we have interns with Mike. Well, that's very good. There's a gentleman right here with his hand raised. If we've got a mic over here, uh, it's arriving. It's the talking stick. Just don't break the glass elephant, please. Uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Um, Captain McGrath, uh, I'm concerned about the fact that the U.S. is still focusing most of its investments in these behemoth systems with incredible capabilities. And I just imagine a day in which China's Navy gets lucky and sinks an aircraft carrier. Isn't it time to sort of move procurement to lots of small, capable units that can swarm onto a target. I mean, swarm warfare seems to be the future, and we're just not there at all. Uh, in one word, no, it's not time. It's time to do both. Um, the, there, it, there simply is no other element of American power as powerful and flexible over time as the American aircraft carrier. What we've been able to do with that platform over the last 70 years, all it is is an airport that moves. It doesn't care what it launches and recovers. It could launch and recover swarms of aircraft with the virtue of moving 600 miles overnight to a new place to do it from. So the sense that it has to be one or the other, I think, is misplaced. Um, we can and should build uh, lower technology, higher impact, swarming unmanned vehicles under the sea, on the surface, and in the air, absolutely. But that does not mean we need to move away from uh, some of the traditional ways that we project sea power. Um, I, I look forward to the day when uh, 
ships and aircraft carriers and the aircraft that aircraft carriers launch from sea are replaced by these other technologies. No one's made a good case for me that it's any time soon. Question right here. Hi, this is Mr. McGrath. Um, Ashley Rookie with Shepard Media. Um, as the defense budget comes out in the coming days, um, also shipbuilding plan is supposed to be released as well as fit up numbers. What are you looking to see in this? What are you looking to see and what would you like to see? Um, I read some stories over the weekend that indicated that there was a, a, a fairly dramatic increase being talked about in defense spending in uh, 19. Um, I think part of that fairly dramatic increase comes from overseas contingency operations being rolled back into the base budget. But there is no doubt that base budget will be larger in 19 if the administration's wishes are granted uh, by the people through their Congress. Um, the problem I see is that the national defense strategy, uh, the unclassified version of which I was briefed on last week or two weeks ago, doesn't make any real choices. And I said earlier, if the, if the Navy is going to grow uh, in the directions that I think it needs to grow uh, to support our place in the world, and I haven't seen anybody yet convince, convince me that we don't want to be the nation's number one power anymore, um, it's either going to take a massive across-the-board increase in, uh, in defense spending so that everybody gets their little piece of the pie, which is the way it's been done in the past, or we have to make choices, strategic choices within that budget and privilege one element of military power. I have seen no evidence of either of those things. So what I project is that the Navy will grow slowly, as will the Army and the Air Force. And the readiness of all those services, as is uh, Secretary Mattis's number one priority, will increase far faster than anyone's hopes of their size will increase. So I don't look for any real increase, serious increase in the size of our forces in the, in the next few years. I see tending the knitting of readiness, maintenance, modernization, uh, and, and the purchase of more weapons to be where Mr. Mattis wants to take this show. Question over here. Yes, uh, Joel Coulter. I advise National Defense Authorization for Supply Chain Security. And as we've grown, the maritime strategy has been, no one can argue that all our navies have become more digital. And the Navy doctrine for cybersecurity and for handing off commander's intent requires a very much advanced digital posture. So how do you see uh, within the, if we all agree that maritime construct is really a, the focus of competition, how do you see those, when the DOD budget comes out and there's all these billions of dollars for supply chain security, how do you see that impacting this rapid uh, growth of the COCs, which actually creates more vulnerability? <clears throat> we take that one, boss. Well, look, the, all the services are, and not only the military services, are increasing their spending on cyber, uh, cyber warfare, and, and creating organizations to do it. 
and uh, the, the reasonable expectation is that this will continue. Um, I just read something this morning about uh, the possibility of uh, Russian hacking of Baltic ports so that they would not be able to detect if nuclear material was coming into the port. And, I, you know, that's out there in the general unclassified world. Um, one hopes that the people in the classified world understand this as well. So uh, uh, if I were advising somebody to what area uh, is a growth area in military? I'd say that that's going to happen for sure. It's happening now, and I expect it will continue in the future. Let's see. We did the first row here. Let's go to the back. You, sir. Hello. Uh, Jerry Hendricks from the Center for New American Security. Um, Seth, your, your point... Uh, talked a lot about the fact that we were part of a broader alliance structure. Uh, we, of course, have seen decline. The Allies have seen their navies cut almost in half in the last 25 years since the end. Do you see much of a chance that the Allies are going to step up and match us as we attempt to grow our fleet? No. I don't think so. Um, but I think that there are, uh, there are certainly understanding in uh, England, uh, in France, uh, in Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, for the extent that it is able to contribute, certainly Japan, um, that something needs to be done about this. And I think that uh, uh, building on that understanding, uh, the understanding of the people of, in those countries who see this um, is really worth doing. Um, because I, this, the, the West has sort of, sort of forgotten um, what sea power means. Now, I'm sort of interested in whether that's connected to uh, the fall of colonialism and um, the, whether the, the importance that was attached to sea power in some way was linked to the need to communicate with overseas colonies. Um, but whatever the historic reasons may be, uh, I'm afraid that the answer to your question is not likely, um, but something that it, I would not take for granted and something that can be effectively addressed. Jerry, I, I have to disagree with my colleague just a tiny bit at pain of obviously being fired. Um, your propensity, I, I, I think your propensity to uh, increase defense spending is, is higher based on your, uh, your understanding of the threat. I don't think he public hectoring of allies into spending more on their defense is anywhere near as effective as the actions of other nations. I think we've seen uh, some incredibly uh, important moves in some of our Scandinavian uh, friends in their, in their approach to defense budgets. Obviously, the Japanese are, um, I think, stepping up in serious and tangible ways. 
Seth named a few of them. So it really, to me, isn't so much, uh, it, it is how they perceive to their threat. And the more proximate you may be to a threat, the more likely you, you are uh, to respond to it. And I, I've seen enough of that to make me think that uh, we're heading in the right direction. Sir? Uh, I commend you on your presentation today. You've raised issues that I hadn't even thought about, including uh, the number of uh, shipbuilding facilities available to update uh, the, the uh, Navy. But uh, in considering various aspects of maritime strategy, uh, there has been barely any mention or allusion to um, the accidents which have occurred with the United States Navy in the last couple of years, uh, four of which I think were significant. Um, the uh, uh, partial destruction of um, the McCain or the severe accidents of the McCain and the Fitzgerald, including loss of life. Wouldn't the, um, and the reasons for this have gone to um, inadequate training of the, uh, of, um, the sailors, as well as human error, uh, including literally being asleep at the wheel. So wouldn't those issues need to be addressed uh, at the top of the list before you get to some of the um, others mentioned here? Um, a couple things. I, I've written widely on this subject. So, um, and, and not, not that I am hesitant to give my opinions anyway. Uh, but they're all out there already. So number one is those accidents were not caused by the larger systemic issues. Those accidents were caused by crappy watch standing, by people in place who knew better, who knew what they were supposed to do, and didn't do it anyway. Now, that doesn't mean that absent those accidents, there weren't also deep, glaring systemic issues in the way readiness was produced in the Western Pacific. There were. The, the, what the Navy has referred to as the normalization of variation or the normalization of deviance occurred. Uh, and you're right, that has to stop. That has, and, and, and it appears to be well underway. Both the Vice Chief of Naval Operations and the CNO are on this one. Uh, they are requiring nearly constant updates from the Surface Forces Commander in the Pacific Fleet. Um, I, I have a sense that uh, the right people are on this, but that it isn't an either or. It isn't that we have to go fix readiness in the Pacific Fleet and eliminate boneheaded watch standing uh, before we get to the necessary naval buildup to meet the challenges of great power competition. We can do both. We're a great nation. Thank you. Dong Hui Yu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, first one, now that China has been listed as a major strategic competitor, do you believe there will be any uh, change in terms of the approaches and policy toward the US-China military relations and US 
Taiwan Security Corporation. The second question is, the 2018 NDAA calls for the uh, port calls and the, uh, inviting Taiwan to join the uh, military exercise with the United States. Do you believe Trump administration would really send a warship to Taiwan uh, when the U.S. is adjusting its you know, strategy? Thank you. I think um, those, are, those are interesting questions and important ones. My own sense would be that China will have a lot of influence over uh, the effect of uh, the development of U.S.-Taiwan relations because the more China threatens Taiwan uh, or seeks to change the military balance in the region in the ways that undercut Taiwanese security and therefore create a more dangerous situation, the harder in the U.S. it is to resist the argument that we must counter. So I think we have to, I think in many, many ways, the, the future of the U.S.-Taiwanese military relationship lies in Beijing. Uh, and so let's hope that, that people there understand that we can have a situation of relative calm uh, in this important part of the world, or we can have one that produces crisis and insecurity. I think the the listing the the listing of China um, is is not itself an indication of specific policy change but represents an awareness, a developing awareness, that um, the hopes Americans had for a, a less confrontational relationship with China are in danger of being disappointed. So it is, again, I think it is more of a, of a signal to say, if we don't, I, I think it's still true that the, the, the road of confrontation with China in the Western Pacific is not the preferred road of, of the Trump administration. It's not the preferred road of the United States. But people won't be deterred from uh, and, and, and are concerned to maintain a secure and stable situation there. So again, I would say in many ways, this, is, this should be read in Beijing as an invitation to rethink, reconsider, and engage more deeply with us. The, the danger in naming them uh, is that it just plays right into a sense of national destiny and, and, uh, and it, where China sees itself. Let's face it, we needed to do it in order to get our own domestic means of production and a consensus moving in order to prepare for it. But at the same time, it just it feeds us a, a very important sense of self-esteem within, within China. And finally, on that point, just uh, a short note, that uh, point that uh, goes along with both Walter and Brian's comments. It's important to see the, the specific naming, explicit naming of China as a strategic competitor against the backdrop. The backdrop is 35 to 40 years 
in which either declared or implicit US policy was to encourage China to become a stakeholder in the liberal international order. Now, that would still be a good thing, and no one doubts that. Um, but this is a different way of looking at the same situation. It acknowledges, in fact, that that policy didn't work. Okay, I just wanted to add that point here. Let's see, we have other questions. Right here on the, on the, the auto. Okay. There, two rows back. Adam Kreischer, Sea uh, Power Magazine. Uh, uh, Mr. McGrath, you seem to indicate that in, uh, in building our uh, shipbuilding industrial base, both commercial and, mil and, and military, you know, we haven't got enough you know shipyards as you actually put it out, and, and to build the, the ship that we, that we need for the 355 fleet, you're going to have to use the utmost capacity of the ones we have. Wouldn't it be better to rely on our allies who already have very good commercial uh, shipbuilding in industries you know, to take care of, uh, of the commercial side so that we have ships to move uh, stuff around in, in the case of a conflict while our shipyards focus on building that, uh, that uh, 355 ship combat you, fleet? You've, you've focused like a laser beam on one of the areas of disagreement between my presentation and Seth's. Seth mentioned the commercial shipbuilding industrial base. I avoided it, right? So I, I believe, like you said, that it is far more efficient for us to outsource the overwhelming majority of the carriage of cargo in the United States to others who will do that efficiently and effectively. We cannot do that for the ships, the warships. And we have to understand that if we are not going to subsidize a commercial shipbuilding industry that could, that could even out those ups and downs in the military uh, uh, building program, that we're going to have to adopt something less than a free market approach to the building of ships. And that is, uh, I, used to tell my, I used to tell my crew, we defend democracy, we don't practice it. All right, so in that, in that uh, subset, it's about, it, we, it's not a capitalist way. It, it is something we have to, we have to have these ships. And uh, it's, a, it's a fundamental constitutional duty of the government to do it. And so now I'm hoping that my friend Brian will agree with me uh, about uh, federal subsidies for the railroad system of the United States, which is part of the infrastructure that supports, um, in fact, the Navy. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see, other questions here. Sir. Thank you. Herbert Regenbogen, professor of Kuro Law Center for International Relations. Rejuvenation of nationalism accelerates comparatively a confrontation. And what role in your strategic maritime proposal does UNCLOS play in terms of A, United, Na United States Navy has requested, endorsed, this initiation as of 2004. And two, the maritime law is particularly important in terms of soft power, which the United States has not joined in this, con in this context. What is your initiation for UNCLOS in this strategy? 
Yeah. Um, so you want the UN Convention on Law and the Sea, and what role does it play in this trade? You want to take that one? All right. Um, it's not like it, UNCLOS exists and the U.S. ignores it. The U.S. fastidiously adheres to the overwhelming majority of the provisions of that treaty. And by doing so, reinforces the accreted effect over time of those portions becoming customary international law. There are several specific provisions of the treaty that we do not uh, abide by. Uh, I am not an expert in that by any stretch of the Im imagination. Um, but I, I think it's important that listeners understand that it's not like we're just some rogue nation not paying attention out there. We are paying attention. Now, to the extent that I've read the treaty and understand it and believe that it is uh, worth signing, my answer is yes. We ought to. I've never been convinced by my friends uh, in the great right-wing conspiracy that, that this is something worth, that it's a hill worth dying on. Um, and I think over time, we may get there. But even if we never get there, the fact that we are recognizing the overwhelming majority of what that treaty, uh, the, the overwhelming majority of what that treaty brings to the ordering of international affairs, I think people have to recognize that. Question here in the second row. Thank you, I'm Satoshi Nishata from Happy Science. Uh, according to the national defense strategy of this year, uh, one of the three strategic approaches is uh, strengthening the alliances and the attracting new partners. And uh, in this aspect, what could be the concrete strategy uh, in terms of uh, facing China and Russia? Well, I think it is interesting that the two people who look at international relations, U.S.-Japanese ties seem to have deepened considerably uh, in, the, in the Trump administration. U.S.-Indian ties, which have been progressing for many years, have also, I think, developed. Uh, the Trump administration's decision uh, to withhold some aid from Pakistan uh, is likely to, to promote a further strengthening of U.S.-India ties. Uh, so I think what we can see is a very serious, conscious effort being made not only on the American side, but also on the Pacific side to First, ensure that these important partnerships aren't disrupted by political storms or controversies. And second, to look to deepen alliances that are already, that are already strong. Uh, my guess is that we would continue to see more of that. If you, uh, you, you mentioned Russia, and there I think we see particularly, say, with the Baltic states and some other European countries, a conscious effort in the United States, in the Trump administration, to promote what are seen as critical alliance ties. Other questions? Well, uh, 
we would like to thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, questions, question period was excellent. Um, Walter, Brian, wonderful presentations, very helpful. And uh, please, uh, if you have not seen uh, um, our study, uh, Maritime Strategy in a New Era of Global Competition, it's on the website, free, Hudson website. Um, I urge you to read it. Uh, if you have cards and give them to me, we can even send you a copy. Um, and uh, I hope you'll stay tuned to the website because there will be more um, such discussions and uh, related ones in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you.